Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask that you prepare our hearts and open our minds. Give us all a teachable spirit, receptive to all that you would have us learn today. And empower Pastor Mike as he preaches from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is the word of the Lord. We made it through our five solas series in October. Those of you who are visiting or haven't been here the last few weeks, October 31st, 1517 marked the five, uh, October 31st, 1517 was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And during that period of time, following Luther's 95 theses being nailed or mailed, as we talked about, uh, these truths of known as the five solas, came out of God's church, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This is what we have been looking at over the last five weeks. But if your memory goes back uh, further than five weeks, uh, you'll remember we have been on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And that's where we return today. And where we are in the Gospel of Mark is we're very close, as Mark has been telling the story of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry. We are very close to the cross. Jesus has been to Jerusalem, and he has done that one event where it's really surprising, where he cleansed the temple, where he caused this great disturbance, and he overturned the tables, and he drove out the money changers, communicating that those who were in charge of the temple area are far from God, and they have missed out on the truth of what the Bible has been teaching. And Jesus proclaimed a very strong message of judgment as he goes into the temple 
and as a sense established his authority over the temple and over the affairs of the Jewish people in Israel. So after that cleansing of the temple, he and the disciples traveled from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. Those of you that have been to Jerusalem, have been to Israel, you can have this in your minds. It's a beautiful thing to have the opportunity to travel there and see where all of these places are and have a picture in your mind, as I do, of the disciples coming from Jerusalem and from that temple area up to the Mount of Olives. And so what Jesus did is he brought his disciples up there and he gave what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Olivet, the fancy word for the, for the Mount of Olives. And what he does in Mark chapter 13 and the other Gospels as well, especially Matthew's Gospel, is he gave teaching about his second coming. So he came some 2,000 years ago, and right before the cross, right before the cross in Mark 13, he is giving teaching to his disciples about his second coming, that he's going to come again. Now, we've already had two messages out of Mark chapter 13, and so we don't have time to summarize all of that, but that's where we're picking it up today. This third message in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his return. So we're going to pick it up. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to the passage that was read to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up in verses 28 through 31. So look at your Bibles with me, Mark 13 and verse 28. It says there, Jesus is speaking in, from the Mount of Olives to his disciples and by extension to us. And he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it or he, some of your translations have he there, either one is acceptable, it's ambiguous, the, the pronoun in the Greek New Testament here, is it refer to it or does it refer to he? Either way, we're talking about his second coming there. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the second coming is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, we start here in verse 28 with this very simple lesson from the fig tree. He is just simply communicating something that was very well known then and now, is, and that is when the twigs uh, get tender, when the fig tree, when the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer uh, is near. You know summer's about to come. If we want to transfer this to our locale and where we are, I would say something like, um, you know, to give us a, a visual uh, when the, the poppies come out, the golden poppies, and the flowers are out in the forest. I'm not talking about in the foothills. I'm not talking about where you uh, irrigate and have got your flowers year-round. But that time of the year where the flowers come out and their color is everywhere. Uh, we want that time to continue, don't we? When that, we have that for, what, a few weeks? You guys with me? Do you guys love that time? It's just a beautiful time in the foothills. And we want that time to continue. We want those flowers to stay, but we know that that time is very limited, and what is coming is a season of dust and of heat and of star thistle and of no flowers. We know that that season is coming, and this is, in essence, what Jesus is, is saying by this simple illustration. He's saying, you know when the figs come. You know when the golden poppies come. 
that summer is very near, that this other thing is very near. And that is an illustration to speak about his coming. So back to the text in verse 29, even so when you see these things happening, you know that it is near. Now, as I've said before, eschatology is very controversial. There's all kinds of views on this, but let me tell you my understanding and the understanding of many others about what this passage is referring to. A key thing is in verse 29, what are these things? Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that Christ's return or he is near. And I want to suggest that what these things refers to are the events leading up to, but not including the second coming. So when you see these things happening, Christ's return is very near. So a couple things here. First, one commentator writes this back to this illustration. He's saying Jesus is using a familiar event in nature, the fig tree in nature, as another illustration, just as the fig tree's branches put forth leaves, leaves, giving a sure sign that summer would soon follow. So when you see these things taking place, you know that Christ will come soon. So what I'm suggesting is happening here. This is a, a, a timeline here. I haven't really used this before. I get to, can I have fun today and use this little, um, this little thing? So here's the first coming, this cross. If you can see that, I should have made that a little bit bigger. Here's the second coming, this cross. Okay, we are living in this, what we call the church age or uh, this, this age of grace. And I want to suggest, as we're going to see in the next few verses, that we actually have no idea where we are on this timeline. Now, some people would say we're right here and we're very near the next event on God's prophetic calendar. We're near the rapture. Others would say, like myself, actually, I have no idea whether we're here whether we're here, whether we're in the middle, we have no idea. And I'm, and I'm going to say that that isn't just my thought, but the Bible actually teaches that we have no idea where we are in here. Now, what I just read about, this illustration uh, of the fig tree, I am saying, and, and many others with me, I'm not alone in this, is that this is describing here, this event. We've already read in Mark 13 about this this time period that is unprecedented in world history. Let me just look back and, and tell you about it. If you want to look there in your Bibles with me to Mark 13 and verse uh, 19, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Here he is speaking in Mark 13 about the great tribulation. This era of stress that has unequaled, worse than World War II, worse than World War I, worse than the time of the flood even in all of history, this time is coming. And so what the verses I just read are saying is when you see the next event on God's prophetic calendar, the rapture of the church, which is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that his church is going to be caught up in the air with him, we're going to enter this period of, of seven years, the world is, of great distress, when you see these things coming, that's when his second coming is very near. It's very, very close. That's what he is describing in verses 28 through 31. Now notice he says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There is an emphasis here on scripture 
and Scripture alone as our ultimate authority. And Scripture is not only the authority for us now living in the church age, but even though the church will be gone, we will be caught up in the air with the Lord, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and then the rest, those of us who are true believers, will be caught with the Lord at the time of the rapture. This passage is, is really speaking to it's speaking to us today, but it is also speaking to those primarily who are living here, those who are going to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. This paragraph is speaking to them, letting them know that heaven and earth are going to pass away, that you are going to make it through this, but my words will never pass away, that the word of God in Scripture is going to be sufficient even for those who are come to faith and are living during this terrible time of the tribulation. So, first point this morning is that the Bible in our hands today is sufficient for every generation, including those that are yet to come, and whenever that is, I am not sure when it is going to be. So in verse 30, when it says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Going back, if I can figure this thing out, yeah, going back He's just simply saying that this is not going to be... There's too many buttons here for me. Um, There we go. Somebody's helping me out. So he's simply saying this is a short period of time. And it isn't going to be generation after generation. It's going to be a terrible time. But the generation that's alive here is going to see his second coming. That's how I and many others who subscribe to what is called pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. These are big words, but simply means pre-tribulational, that that is the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation, and premillennial, that is that the second coming here is going to happen before this thousand years described in Revelation 20 and verse 6. Okay, are you with me, church? Okay, so this is verses 28 through 31. Let's uh, move forward now and look at verse 32. Verse 32, no one knows about that day or our, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So in my Bible, there's a shift here. There's a paragraph separation. There's a heading. And I think that is appropriate. You should know that this isn't in the original. In the original, there's no paragraph divisions. There's no headings. So these are modern-day scholars and editors who have put these things in here, but I think this one is appropriate because there is a shift, I believe, between what's verse 31 and verse 32. And you don't need a Bible to be a Bible scholar to figure this out. You don't have to know Greek to figure this out. Jesus is speaking about how these things, uh, when you see these things happening, that something is very near the second coming of Christ. That's what's being discussed in verses 28 through 31. But now there's a shift saying no one knows about that day or that hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. So I don't think he's referring here to the second coming. All right, if I can figure this thing out and go back now. Can you go back to the slide, Michael, for me? There we go. If we go back to this, what he's referring to now is those of us that are... Yikes. I I got too many buttons here. What he's referring to now is wherever you are reading this passage... No one knows when all of this is going to begin, when it begins right here, the next event on God's prophetic calendar. No one knows about that day or hour. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord 
uh, in the book of Daniel and in other prophetic texts refers to, includes the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium. And no one knows when all of this is going to begin. I don't know it. You don't know it. Bible prophetic scholars who read the Jerusalem Post and read the book of Daniel and read Revelation, they don't know when this is going to happen. That's what verse 32 is saying. Not only did they not know, but notice what it says in verse 32. This is astonishing. Not even the angels in heaven know, and not only the angels don't know, but the Son of God, Jesus, doesn't know, but only the Father. That is a radical, somewhat crazy statement. How does Jesus not know about the end? How does he not know when this is going to happen? He's fully God. In fact, in John's gospel, it says he knows all things. So how does this work out? I don't pretend to think I'm going to be able to explain this completely. There is mystery in Jesus. There is mystery in that he is fully God and fully man, and he doesn't know the hour or the day, and that he knows all things. There is mystery in this, but let's, let's work through this a little bit, uh, what this is saying. Uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 4, um, it says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. This is referring to the second coming, I'm sorry, to the first coming, not to the second coming, Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Christmas, incarnation, the first coming. The father is the one who sends the son. He sent him at his first coming, and he's going to send him at his second coming. Jesus, the son of God, is throughout the scriptures subordinate to God the father. He functions in a way that is subordinate to his father. Now, he is no less than the Father. He is fully God. But God is the one who sends him, and God is the one who's going to send him again. And this text is saying just exactly what it looks like it is saying. Now, I think something that's helpful for us to understand, there's kind of a a fancy term for what I'm talking about here, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And the fancy term for that is functional subordination. That is, Jesus functions in a way that is subordinate to God the Father. But he is no less than God the Father. He is just as much God as God is. He's not God Jr., but he functions in a way that is subordinate. It's kind of like a teacher who has a a very bright student, a very capable student. That student may grasp the material in the classroom and may know the material just as well as the teacher. They, They may be even-keeled when it comes to intellect and understanding of this material. But nonetheless, that teacher, that the student is subordinate to his teacher, even though he may have the same intellectual ability, have the same value, have the same thing, but he is subordinate. And that's part of what we see going on here, and we see this going on throughout the New Testament. So again, right now I'm dealing with how we come to terms with the reality of the text of Scripture saying that Jesus doesn't know X about the second coming or the end of time, and the scripture says that he knows all things. So Thomas Aquinas tries to deal with this issue this way. He says about Jesus, Jesus is said, therefore, not to know 
the day and the hour of the judgment or the end. He does not make it known since on being asked by the apostles, he was unwilling to reveal it. So what Aquinas says is, well, actually, of course, Jesus knows the hour. He knows the day, but he just isn't going to reveal it. Now, I don't know about you, but this just doesn't sit very well with me. That he actually knows it, but he, he's not going to say it, and that's, we just have to infer that. Rather, I think this commentator um, explains the situation much better. This, this dilemma between Jesus knowing all things and not knowing the end, not knowing the hour of his return or the beginning of the end-time events. So this commentator writes this. He says, For we know that in Christ the two natures, human and divine nature, were united into one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties. And more especially, the divine nature was in a state of repose. That's the important phrase in this commentary here. The divine nature of Jesus was in a state of repose. His divine nature is, if you will, on the back burner and did not at all exert itself whenever it was necessary that the human nature should act separately according to what was peculiar to itself in discharging the office of a mediator. There would be no impropriety, therefore, in saying that Christ, who knew all things, John 21, 17 says that Christ knows all things, was ignorant of something in respect of his perception as a man. For otherwise he could not have been liable to grief and anxiety and could not have been like us. Now as we read the New Testament, we know that Jesus is like us. We know that when Lazarus died, that in many ways Jesus is like us. When Lazarus died, what did Jesus do? He wept. He grieved. Now, how was that weeping and that grieving authentic and real? If he knows what's coming. So what this commentator is saying is that his divine nature is in repose. And so that grief and that trauma was, was, was legitimate. And there are times where Jesus goes and, and, and utilizes his divine nature. But day in and day out, he is living in many ways as you and I are. Now, that took a while but this is, I'm trying to help us understand this, this um, issue. And there is an essence that we're dealing with mystery here. And I can't explain it. And, and this commentator or whoever can't explain it perfectly. We, our, our Savior was fully human and fully God. And there is a degree of mystery in how this plays out. But the text, I think, is very clear. Back to our text, that he does not know. Only the Father. I think Aquinas is wrong. Only the Father knows. So, implication or application of verse 32. You and I need to beware of teachers who claim to know more than Jesus and the angels about end-time events. We need to be very wary. This is, this is not about date-setting or prediction or a lack of study, but Jesus and the angels don't know, and I don't know, and I suggest that you and, and other Bible prophecy scholars don't know as well. One more comment on this section. William Lane, he writes this. He says, his purpose, referring to Mark writing this gospel, Mark's purpose was not to define the limits of Jesus' theological knowledge, but to indicate that vigilance, not calculation, is required. We shouldn't come away from this passage trying to figure out and correspond exactly when things are going to happen. As we're about to see in a moment, what this passage is ultimately about is you and I being ready and being vigilant. 
If the Son of Man and the angels are ignorant of that day, it is because nothing allows a presentiment of its coming. Its approach is impossible to discern, and so prepare oneself for us. Uh, prepare oneself for it. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the remaining minutes of this message about how you and I are to prepare for the return of Christ, for the beginning of these end-time events. The next event on the prophetic calendar, I'm suggesting, is what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, the rapture. So let's move on to verses 33 through 37, and that's the rest, that's all we're going to look at today through verse 37. So let's pick it up at verse 33. Jesus says, this is the end of his teaching of the, on the Olivet Discourse. He says, be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Again, you do not know when these end time events are going to begin. Verse 34, he tells this parable. This parable is known as the, the parable of the absent homeowner. Interestingly, it's only recorded here. The, the Olivet Discourse is recorded also in Matthew's Gospel, but here... This is the only place this, this absent homeowner parable is taught. Verse 34, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, be alert. This is the primary thing that we should take away from this text and from this sermon today. God is saying to us as, as followers of Jesus that we need to watch, that we need to be alert for the end, for these end time events that are coming. He tells this parable, the parable of the absent homeowner. You probably get this intuitively, but just to be clear. So the absent homeowner uh, refers to Christ. Christ left this earth after the resurrection. After the resurrection, he ascended to heaven. He, he is, he rep- the, the absent homeowner represents his absence as he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And we are now in this time period, this church age, awaiting the beginning of the end times. The nighttime that is referenced here, uh, the rooster crows or at dawn or at midnight, the nighttime references this time between the ascension and the rapture. That's what this time period refers to, what the darkness or the nighttime refers to. And then the servants, the doormen, refers to us, refers to the disciples who were sitting there with him on the Mount of Olives. And it refers to us 2,000 years later through the Scripture alone, our only infallible authority for life. And what he is saying to us, the same thing he was saying to the disciples, is you need to watch and you need to be ready for my return. You don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus is like the absent homeowner. He's saying, I'm going to come back, but you have no idea when it's going to happen, when the end times are going to begin, when I'm going to raise the dead and rapture the church, and this end is going to begin. You have no idea when it's going to happen, so be alert, be ready. This is the primary thing we should take away from this passage. So a couple of illustrations here. What what this passage is, is not saying is that we should be fixed and ready for a certain date or a certain time. Uh, 
some years ago, I did a wedding. It was actually on Dry Creek Road, uh, on the other side of 49, uh, at the neighborhood there near the golf course. And this wedding, it, it was like it was almost like this house and this property were designed for the wedding itself. Uh, the, the home had like an amphitheater uh, of, of lawn out in front of it. So if I was on the, we had the, the bridal party, and I did this with another pastor, and we're, sitting, we're standing there kind of on the front entryway to the home outdoors. This pagoda over us and all these flowers and this beautiful grass area that kind of went up like stadium seating. And I mean, the place was just unbelievable. I mean, I done a lot of weddings, and this, this one stands out as far as a wedding in a home for the scenery. It had a guest house over there, and so, you know, the, the, the bride and all the ladies are separated, and, and the grooms in the main house. I mean, they just thought through everything. The parking, the valet parking, the chairs, just everything was set up. Everything was ready because they knew the date of the wedding, and they knew what was going on, and they had actually renovated, like, their whole place and their whole house for this wedding date. Pretty cool thing. How many of us as parents would like to have something like that? So that is like an anti-illustration of what we're talking about here, though. Okay, this is, this is the opposite of what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is we have no idea when the wedding date is going to take place. And so we are called to be on watch 24-7. Constantly. This is what this passage is saying. It is reality. It's been 2,000 years, and so it's very easy for us to think, I mean, I don't think he's coming back. I don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, it's been a long, long time. So I'm trying to preach this with all of the heart that I have, that Jesus is saying he is coming back soon, and we need to live day in and day out knowing that he is coming for us. We don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be unprepared. We want our souls to be ready like that place was ready on that wedding day but we have no idea when it is going to come. So three ways to be alert. Three ways to be alert. And we'll finish up with these. This is the primary emphasis of this text today. How we are to be ready, how we're to be alert, how we're to be on watch. Revelation 22.20, this prayer, come Lord Jesus. We need to pray with the scriptures, with the spirit-inspired scriptures, and pray with the apostle who wrote this, Come, Lord Jesus. We should be praying for him to come and expecting him to come. And as we are praying and awaiting his return, awaiting the rapture, awaiting all of these events at the end of time, our lives should be changing and growing, and we should be falling more and more in love with Jesus. So pray for and expect the blessed hope today. The blessed hope is one of the words that the New Testament uses for that next event on God's prophetic calendar, which we have no idea when it's going to be, the rapture. So rapture and blessed hope are the same thing in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, all women, all children. It teaches us to say no, the grace of God to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. This is the context of how we live today as Christians. Our lives are being transformed by God's grace, saying no to worldly passions and ungodliness while we wait for the blessed hope, while we wait for the end, while we wait for the rapture. 
the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's going to appear in the skies. So, so we need to be alert. We need to pray and expect his return. One commentator says this. He says, The fullness of grace and its complete work will come only when Jesus returns and believers are to long for that day. They do so by thinking rightly about reality and by living sober-minded and sensible lives in this present evil age. We are reminded daily of this evil age that we live in, of the terror attacks that are going on, of the wars and rumors of war, of the earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and fires and all of these things that are going on. We are reminded that we are living in this evil age and this, this world that is, that is not doing well at all, but we can do well in the midst of that world because of Christ in us and through us as we wait for his return. So pray for and expect the blessed hope today. Second thing I want to say, we're talking now about how to respond to this passage. Three ways to be alert, how to respond to this passage. I want to say, secondly, that we need to increasingly move to what Tim Keller and others call frontline prayer. Frontline prayer. So let me kind of introduce these two concepts to you. You're probably familiar with them, but maybe not these headings. So maintenance prayer and frontline prayer. So give you a picture of what I'm talking about here, an illustration of what I'm talking about. Are you more likely to pray for lost keys or are you more likely to pray for a lost friend to be saved? Okay, maintenance prayer versus frontline prayer. Are you more likely to pray for your family member's physical healing or are you more likely to pray for your family member's personal holiness? Maintenance prayer versus frontline prayer. We're on the front lines reclaiming territory for the kingdom of God, taking light into darkness. Are you more likely to pray for physical safety or for increased faith to take risks in sharing the gospel, which may result in persecution? Now, I'm not saying this morning that we shouldn't pray for lost keys. Can I get an amen? I actually lost my keys this morning on my way to church. I didn't lose them, but they were just misplaced, right? I'm trying to go out the door. I accidentally took my keys with me. Have I mentioned I'm a mountain biker? Um, I accidentally took my keys with me mountain biking yesterday, and that threw me off. So I was looking for them this morning, but maybe the Lord had a sense of humor here. It's not wrong to pray for lost keys, but that's, that's maintenance kind of prayer. It's actually good to go before the Lord with all the concerns that we have. But what I'm suggesting is some of us, we're way more inclined to pray for physical healing, for lost keys, for these kinds of things, and not praying for the kingdom of God to advance, that we are on the front lines. We've been given a mission to make disciples. So how do we respond to this passage? What does it look like to be alert as the homeowner is away? Praying for him to come back, number one, and then increasingly moving toward frontline prayer. So frontline prayer, a request for grace to confess sins and to humble ourselves. This is what I mean by frontline prayer. This is what I'm suggesting it means to be alert. That we are looking for grace to confess our sins and be humble before this great and holy God. That we, are, that we pray for compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church, for the flourishing of Cornerstone and all of the churches in the foothills. I'm very thankful. Some of you have been talking to me, hey, we need to be praying for the other churches in the foothills as well. In fact, we did that last Sunday. Yes, and the reaching of the lost. 
This is what, what we mean by frontline prayer. A yearning to know God, to see His face, to glimpse His glory. You see the vast difference between number three and praying, which is totally fine to pray for our lost keys, but there's a big difference between that and number three. God, help me to know and love Jesus, to see his face, to glimpse his glory, and for him to be glorified in and through my own life. So what I'm saying is how we're responding to this passage. We're praying for the blessed hope. We are increasingly moving toward frontline prayer. John Piper summarizes. He doesn't use the language frontline prayer, but he's talking about the same kind of thing when he writes this. He says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It, It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. That is not what prayer is. I don't want to be overstating here. It's okay to pray for lost keys, but this tends to characterize what our prayers are like. I'm thankful that we pray before every meal, our family and most of you. But as I listen to our own prayers, I'm, I'm speaking and preaching to myself here. A lot of our prayers are like this, this bottom part of this quote. The homeowner is away, and he is looking for us to be alert. He is looking for us to be ready. He is looking for us to be awake. Finally, this morning, third way to respond here. Third way to be alert is to love Christ, knowing the result is personal holiness. We don't shoot for personal holiness. We shoot, we aim for Christ. We want to know him. And as we fall in love with him, our lives are going to change. We'll close with these words from J.C. Ryle. He says this, Love to Christ is the mainspring of work for Christ. There is little done for his cause on earth from sense of duty or from knowledge of what is right and proper. The heart must be interested before the hands will move and continue moving. Excitement may galvanize the Christian's hands into a fitful and spasmodic activity, but there will be no patient continuance in well-doing, no unwearied labor in missionary work at home or abroad without love. The nurse in a hospital may do her duty properly and well may give the sick man his medicine at the right time, may feed him, minister to him, and attend to all his wants. But there is a vast difference between that nurse and a wife tending the sickbed of a beloved husband or a mother watching over a dying child. The one acts from a sense of duty, the other from affection and love. The one does her duty because she is paid for it. The other is what she is because of her heart. It is just the same in the matter of service of Christ. We need not only to be praying for his return by moving in the direction of frontline prayer, but praying that we would love Christ more than anything else in all the world and we will see ourselves changing and we will be alert and we will be ready when he comes. We will not be found asleep. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to make us alert and ready. Father in heaven, God, we confess to you once again, as we did earlier in our service, our sins, those things that we have left undone. Lord, we have left undone 
pursuit of Jesus, frontline prayer. We have left undone this New Testament thinking that Jesus is coming and he wants us to be ready. Lord, it has been a long time since your first coming from our perspective between your second coming. Lord, help us in spite of these 2,000 years that have passed to be ready and to be alert. Help us to love you more than anything else in all the world. And Lord, we pray that we would see our lives changing, that we would be displaying the beauty and glory of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.